Support for today's episode of Truth and Justice comes from ABC Network's new weekly drama series, Conviction. Each year in America, thousands of people are wrongfully convicted. That's why the Conviction Integrity Unit was assembled. On this great new show, you can follow the investigations of this elite team who have only five days to determine if the seemingly innocent should be set free. Inspired by real events and from the executive producer of Criminal Minds, Conviction stars Haley Atwell and it premiered on October 3rd and it shows on Monday nights at 10, 9 central on ABC. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and today is one of those days where you may want to get a notebook handy for this episode. The Dobbs interview has been pushed again. I spoke with Dave a couple days ago, and he was trying to get access to all of the documents, the same documents that I've asked for in the open records request. And he said that since he's not a current DA, he has to have somebody accompany him to go look through them. And the Smith County DA's office has been a little busy for the last couple of days. For any of you that are not aware, this past weekend, on November 1st, a young girl in Smith County went missing. After searching for, I believe, two days, her body was finally discovered in a well. They do now have a suspect in custody. I believe it was a relative of hers, but it's actually made national news, and according to Mr. Dobbs, it's been occupying the time of Matt Bingham for the last several days. But that actually works out great. Because just this week, two days ago, I finally got access to some documents from a different open record request that answers a lot of questions that we had about the investigation and paints a pretty clear picture about what was going on back when Ed was arrested and indicted. So we're going to get right into the content of today's episode, which is the analysis of all of the documents, correspondences, and reports sent to and from the Texas Department of Public Safety Crime Lab in Dallas, Texas. When I first looked for all the documents in Ed's case, when I went to Smith County earlier this summer, I found in the discovery file, that's the file of documents that the prosecution turned over to the defense, one document from the Department of Public Safety. That document was a letter written to Jason Waller from Lorna Beasley of the DPS, explaining that Edward Eights was ruled out as the source of the semen stain found on the comforter in Elnora's bedroom. Let me read you the conclusion from that report. The conclusion states, The blood group substance B detected in the semen stain from the comforter is foreign to both the victim and suspect eights and could not have come from either. Mosley is included as a possible source of this stain. So we have known all along that the semen stain on the comforter did not belong to Edward Eights, and the jury heard that Leonard Mosley was a possible contributor of that semen stain, but the prosecution did a good job of explaining that away because he had been in a relationship with Elnora and it would be expected to find his semen stain on that comforter. 
But that is the only document that we have from the Texas Department of Public Safety. Well, it's not the only document we have, it's the only document that we had. Through an open records request, we now have 35 pages of documents that include correspondences back and forth from Smith County to the Department of Public Safety. And what I want to do in this first segment today is to break down the timeline of how these things were tested and when. We all know that Elnora was murdered on Thursday, July 22, 1993. The next night on the 23rd leading into the morning of the 24th, Detective Jason Waller and Detective Melody McKay processed the crime scene and collected evidence. That same night, Detective Dale Huckel, along with Captain Bobby Garman and Deputy Steve Cheney, took Edward Ates and his mother back to the Smith County Sheriff's Department to interview him. During this interview, they took off his clothes, they took photos of him, they looked for any scratches, any marks on him, and they took the scraping from his shoes. So in our timeline at this point, on the morning of July 24th, that's the Saturday morning, all the police know is that Kubia said Ed was there, Ed said he wasn't there, he said he was at Monica's, Monica confirmed that he was there, but that he had lied about how he got there. That is the entirety of the case against Edward Ates at this point. Just three days later, a whole bunch of evidence was submitted to the crime lab in Dallas. This took place on Tuesday, July 27th. So what had happened here was on the morning of July 24th, Elnor's body was transported to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy. The medical examiner performed the autopsy. They took fingernail clippings from Elnora, swabbed her body for any trace evidence. They took swabs for a sexual assault kit, and they sent all that back to Smith County, who then in turn on Tuesday sent all of that out to the Department of Public Safety. Smith County sent 36 items of evidence to the crime lab on the 27th. The first thing that I found interesting is that on that Tuesday, the 27th, all 36 of these items of evidence were submitted by Jason Waller. But based on trial testimony, I was under the impression that Jason Waller had left on vacation on Monday, but the submission on the 27th has his signature on it. And all of the correspondences from this point forward are responded back to Jason Waller, even though Detective Dale Huckel was actually the lead investigator on the case. But in any case, the position that the Smith County Sheriff's Department was in at this point was that they had the information that I just gave you leaning towards Edward Eight's guilt, and they had 36 pieces of evidence to go in for testing. The initial request was simply requesting for the Department of Public Safety Crime Lab to determine if there is any trace evidence on any of these items. They sent them everything from the comforter to pillows to the sexual assault kit and hairs and fibers that were found on the scene. On August 16th, so less than three weeks later, the crime lab sent a report back to Detective Waller. The report pointed out all of the trace evidence that was found, and we'll get into all of that in the second segment of today's show, but it didn't give them any new information about their suspect at eights. They hadn't sent in any samples to compare this stuff to. So at this point, their case against eight still stands exactly as it did before, with the only additional information being the statement from Jesse Nelson and his stepson, Cedric Walker. Remember, Jesse Nelson said that he saw Elnora's car in the parking lot that day, but his son said that the car that they saw was one that he had seen there many times before. At the end of this correspondence from the DPS on August 16th, there's a section marked Investigative Leads, and it reads as follows. Remaining samples of the victim's blood specimen and the stains tested will be stored frozen to preserve the biological constituents. Should further analysis be desired, please submit a sample of known blood, saliva, semen if possible, and representative sample of at least 15 pulled head and pubic hairs from the suspect. 
resubmit this evidence along with the requested additional items. In the very end, it says, we are unable to retain this evidence. Please make arrangements to pick it up at your earliest convenience. Signed, Lorna Beasley. The reports show that Melody McKay did indeed go and pick up the items. And then here's the strange part. There was no new evidence discovered at this point. Even the part in Dale Huckel's supplemental report, where it says that they found this knife at Ed's employer, happened later, after Ed was arrested. So all they had was those statements, no new leads, no new evidence. They got the report back from the crime lab stating that there is a lot of trace evidence that can be tested against any known samples, but at this point, nothing was tying Ed Eights to that crime. But then on August 26th, Ed is arrested. I have no idea what happened between the 16th when they received this letter and the 26th when Ed was arrested. They certainly didn't get any new evidence from the crime lab during that period of time. So Ed is arrested on the 26th with no evidence other than the exact same evidence they had back on July 24th. After they had already arrested Ed on the 27th the next day, then Smith County sent his blood, hair, and semen samples to the crime lab to be compared against the trace evidence that had been collected a month earlier. And then here's the strange part. Almost two weeks later, again, this is after Ed had been arrested, Waller submitted hair, blood, and semen samples from Leonard Mosley to the crime lab. I'm not quite sure why they made this submission. They clearly already thought they had enough evidence to convict Eights, otherwise they wouldn't have arrested him, nor should they have arrested him. If they still weren't sure it was him, and they were still looking into other leads to see if someone else committed this crime, then they should have waited to arrest someone. But that wasn't the case here. Two weeks after Ed is arrested, they submit the samples from Leonard Mosley. I believe that this is an indication that they weren't quite sure they had the right man at this point. That is, unless the purpose of submitting Leonard Mosley's items of evidence to the crime lab was to rule him out as a suspect. And if that's the case, this was a huge backfire on Smith County, or at least it should have been. Five days after Mosley's hair, semen, and blood samples were submitted, Ed's shoes were submitted to be tested for traces of blood. Now, in my opinion, these are all things that should have been done before Ed was arrested. They should have been collecting this evidence and sending it for testing to determine if they should arrest Ed. Unfortunately, that's not the way things work in Smith County. They arrested him first and then tried to figure out if he was the one that committed the crime. I'm sure at this point, Waller and Huckel were holding their breath waiting for the results to come back to prove that Edward H. was the one that killed Elnora. But on September 21st, their case took a big blow. This is the correspondence that we already had. Smith County had requested for the crime lab to test for three things. Number one, test to see if there's any traces of blood on Ed's shoe. This report states that there are no traces of blood on the shoes. Strike one. They had also found a shred pocket knife on the side of the road on Highway 31 near the crime scene, and they had sent that knife to the lab to be tested for traces of blood. There were none. Strike two. And lastly, they had asked the crime lab to test the semen stain from the comforter and compare that against Mosley and Aits. As I told you earlier, Edward Aits was ruled out, and the final line of the conclusion states, Mosley is included as a possible source of this stain. So one of two things had happened at this point. Either they weren't sure if it was Ed or Leonard that actually committed the murder, and they hoped this test would give them the answer to that. 
If that was the case, the test clearly shows that Leonard Mosley is a much more likely suspect than Ed Eights. The problem is that it was too late for that. There had already been press releases and news reports that Elnora Griffin's murderer had been caught, and now they had some evidence that pointed the other direction, and they had no evidence that pointed towards Eights. Or they had submitted this simply so that they could rule Mosley out as a suspect to try to beat down any defense that Eights' team might have. But that backfired also, because Mosley can't be ruled out as a suspect because he's included as a possible source of the semen stain. And again, Ed was ruled out. At this point, Smith County is in a pickle. They've already arrested Ed. They've already told the press that they caught the killer. They were already working to bolster a case against him, but nothing was matching with him. So the logical thing to do next, if they truly believed that he was the killer, would be to request DNA analysis of everything else that was sent to that crime lab, including the over 200 hairs that were found on the scene, some of which were found on Elnora's dead body. And the DPS crime lab agreed with me. The last paragraph of this report from September 21, 1993 reads as follows. Investigative leads. Hair examinations will be completed when hairs recovered from the previously submitted items are resubmitted to the laboratory. So again, this is September of 1993, two months after the murder, one month after Ed was already arrested. None of the physical evidence has come back to Ed, but they still have a pile of physical evidence sitting in the evidence locker in Smith County. Remember, back in August, the crime lab sent all of that evidence back to Smith County. And what they're asking for here is for them to send it back so that they can test it against the hairs that they already had from Edward Eights, Elnora Griffin, and Leonard Mosley. But this is the most sickening part. Smith County never submitted the hairs back for testing. Now, they did eventually, and we know that from the trial. Lorna Beasley testified about all the forensic testing that was done on the hairs, and we found out later that none of them were Edward Eights. But what we didn't find out that trial was that the DPS had told Smith County to send those hairs back for testing in 1993, but Smith County never resubmitted those hairs for testing until after Ed's first mistrial. I believe that after they got this initial lab report back, and it was very clear that it was not Ed Eights who committed this murder, keep in mind that during this same time, all the fingerprints that were found on the scene were sent to the FBI to be compared to Edward Eights. So not only did they get a report back from the DPS stating that there was no blood on his shoes, there was no blood on the knife, and the semen on the scene wasn't his, but at that same time, the FBI sent them a report back stating that none of the fingerprints were Ed's. Based on the forensic evidence, the only logical suspect whatsoever was Leonard Mosley. And they had Leonard Mosley's hair, semen, and blood on scene. They had everything they needed to get a solid DNA profile and they had over 200 hairs found on that scene. And when the DPS asked them to resubmit those hairs so they can compare them to Leonard Mosley, Smith County ignored them. Then they finally took Ed to trial in 1996 without any physical evidence indicating that Ed murdered Elnora, and they were unable to secure a conviction. At that point, Judge Gomert said that he wanted another trial as quickly as possible. And it wasn't until then that Smith County finally resubmitted all these hairs to be tested against Edward Eights. It is painfully obvious that Smith County never had any intention of figuring out who actually murdered Elnora Griffin.
Now, even though Smith County didn't want to look any further into who the physical evidence actually pointed towards, this report from August of 1993 does help to paint a picture for us about who actually committed this murder. So let's move forward and break down all of the evidence that was analyzed point by point. Now, I'm not going to cover everything because a lot of this has already been covered. I will have the document up on the website for you to review. One of the first items that caught my attention that really just leaves us with another question is for any of you who have been on the website and looked at the crime scene photos, you remember the small round pink pillow that was found on the living room floor. And you can clearly see on that pillow what looks like a blood stain. Well, at this point, we have no idea what that actually was. The DPS report says a hard brown substance was recovered from the pillow. A presumptive test for the presence of blood was negative on several stains and smears from this item. Now, the report when it was submitted said that it was a possible blood stain. So it obviously isn't the picture. It looked like a blood stain. And the pillow was definitely out of place. It was found on the floor, and it was within three feet of Elnor's body. So I'm really curious as to what that stain was. Then we move on to item number 10 in this report, which is the comforter from the master bedroom. You remember the comforter had that really brown, ugly colored stain that we assumed to be a semen stain based on the way it was testified about at trial. I couldn't wait to read about this to find out if she said anything that might indicate that it was a fresh stain. Unfortunately, that's not what I found out when I read this report regarding the comforter. It turns out there were two stains on that comforter, and your guess is as good as mine as to where the second stain was found. I've examined and zoomed in every square inch of that comforter and can only see the one brown stain, the stain that looks wet, where you can see the reflection of the flash. But this is what the report says about the comforter. Semen and blood group substances B and H were detected on one stain on the comforter. This stain did not respond to PGM typing. We knew that from trial. That's the semen stain that did not match Edward Eights, but could have come from Leonard Mosley. But then the next paragraph states, A presumptive test for the presence of blood was negative on one brownish stain. A nonspecific presumptive test for the presence of semen was also negative on this stain. So what they're saying here clearly is that there were two separate stains. There was a semen stain that we haven't seen, And then there was the brown stain that was not semen, nor was it blood. Now, for a few minutes here, this is going to get really gross, so you may want to skip ahead a few seconds. But after reading this, I'm trying to figure out then what the hell was that stain? It doesn't look like feces. All the feces is down on the floor, and it's solid. This stain, in the close-up photo, you can see that this is fluid. It's liquid. You can see how it's soaked into the bed and it still has characteristics of being wet or having kind of a skin on it because the camera flash reflected off of it. I would love to hear your input on what you think it might be, so please email, tweet, Facebook, or call into the follow-up on Tuesday. But this is my theory. The only thing that makes sense to me was if that stain is a mixture of feces and lubricant. And again, I apologize for the disgustingness of this conversation. But I do think that it's possible that it's a further indication that Elnor was having anal sex, either forced or consensual. A liquidy substance that is brown in color, that is not blood or semen, is found up on the comforter, not down on the floor where there is solid fecal material, I think may add up to anal sex with lubricant. And also when we consider the fact that there was no semen found and no condom recovered from the crime scene, 
I think that it is at least worth considering that someone was having anal sex with Onora and they were interrupted. Well, that's just a hypothesis, so please get in touch with me and let me know what you think or if you have any better ideas that aren't as gross as that. But moving on, the last paragraph about the comforter says that hairs and clear fibers were recovered from the comforter. Now, I also have a question about this that maybe some of you can give me some ideas. These clear fibers show up throughout this report. They were found on her body, they were found on the floor, they were found on the comforter. I don't know what clear fibers could be or where they could have come from. And of course, it's not specific enough to tell us how long they are or what their density is or anything like that. But if any of you have any idea what these clear fibers could be, please let me know. The next item is the curtain tieback that was found in the bedroom. And there were also two clear fibers and a small cluster of blue fibers found on the curtain tieback. Now, as we move on in the report, I realized that I had made a mistake earlier. You all remember the small nail polish chip that was recovered from Elnora's buttocks that I thought disappeared. Remember, there was a big deal made about this at trial because when Beasley opened the envelope with the chip in it to analyze it, there was nothing in there. Well, as it turns out, and this was the case all along, this was my mistake, the nail polish chip that went missing was actually discovered on the bed. The nail polish chip that was discovered on Elnora's buttocks was recovered. There wasn't a lot of analysis done. On the report, it says, The small pinkish-red metallic chip recovered from the deceased buttocks appears to be nail polish. The color is slightly darker than the polish on the victim's fingernail clippings in item 51. Item 51 is the sexual assault kit. So for starters, it's a good thing that this fingernail polish chip didn't disappear, but it also might tell us a little more about the crime scene. This wasn't found in some random place throughout the house. It wasn't found on the carpet. It wasn't found on a part of Elnor's body that was touching the carpet. Remember, Elnor was lying face down when her body was found. It appears that's the way she went down and stayed down when her throat was slit. And this nail polish chip was found on her buttock. I find it really difficult to figure out an innocuous way for a nail polish chip that doesn't match her nail polish to end up on top of her deceased body. Also, it's worth noting that there were a few other fingernail chips found throughout the crime scene, but they were all recovered from the carpet, and it's noted that they all appeared to have been cut, whereas the polished chip that was found on her buttock was not cut. It was chipped off. Now, the next thing to be tested was the curtain that had been pulled off during the struggle. The report says a presumptive test for the presence of blood was positive on three minute stains on the curtain. No further analysis was performed on these stains. While reviewing this report and cross-referencing it to the crime scene photos, it occurred to me that that curtain had been pulled off of the wall before Elnora's throat was slit. Now, she could have still been bleeding because she did have cuts on her face and her arm and her leg, but it sure would have been nice if they had done a DNA test on the blood on the curtain. Because if you don't remember, that curtain was not left in the living room. The killer picked the curtain up off of the living room floor carried it back to the laundry room, and actually put it into the dirty clothes basket where they grabbed the towel to nail up over the window. And while we were analyzing this, Mike made a really good point. In passing, he said, What man would think to put the curtain in the dirty laundry basket? I mean, remember, this is a very disorganized crime scene. And from the beginning, when we did the initial crime scene analysis, I thought that it was very strange that things seemed to be happening at both ends of the trailer at the same time. 
And if there were two people in that trailer, while everything was in disarray, the lamp had been knocked onto the table, the curtain rod was on the floor, the curtain tieback had been thrown into or carried into the bedroom, all of this was a mess. But the curtain got picked up and taken back into the dirty clothes basket. And this got me thinking again about Angela Walker. I was remembering back to my conversation with her when she told me that there were fingernail scratches all over Elnora's body. At the time, I thought that was a really strange thing to say because as far as we know, there were no fingernail scratches on Elnora's body. At trial, when the medical examiner was testifying and Jason Waller was testifying, they talked about marks on Elnora's back, but they said that they assumed that she had been hit with the curtain rod. So I decided this week to go back to the autopsy photos and look for myself to see if there were any fingernail scratches. At this point, we have a few indications that there was a female at that crime scene. We have the fingernail chip on Elnora's buttocks. We have the curtain moved into the dirty clothes basket, which that's really speculative. I mean, to be honest, I would probably pick that up and put it in the dirty clothes basket. I'm kind of a neat freak myself. But I get where Mike was coming from. But sure enough, when I looked at the autopsy photos, on the lower left side of Elnora's back, there are a series of marks. These are the marks that were explained away at trial as probably being from the curtain rod. Except for that doesn't make much sense. They weren't bruises. It appears that once Elnora broke loose from the struggle in the bedroom and ran towards that door, everything was happening very quickly. I think that she got to the door, the killer caught up with her, pulled her away from it, that's when the curtain got ripped off, they hit the table behind them, that knocked the lamp over, she made it about three more steps and got her throat slit. I don't see when the killer would have picked up a curtain rod and started hitting her with it. But more importantly than that, when we looked at these marks, they look exactly like fingernail scratches. There are four scratches that were moving in unison, because you can see where they went up and then back down. And one of them is pretty distinct, and it shows the two outside edges of the scratches deeper than the center of it. So if you can imagine a fingernail that has an arc to it, if you drug that across someone's back, the outside edges would dig in deeper. And that's exactly what these scratches look like. After really looking at these scratch marks and showing them to a few other people who I trust, I'm confident in saying that there were four fingernail scratches on Elnor's back, which is really concerning when you compare that to the fact that Angela told me there were fingernail scratches on her, but nowhere in the official record, nor was it stated at trial, that she had fingernail scratches on her body. I'm going to call that the third indication that there was a female on the crime scene that night who was directly involved in the murder. Next, we move into the guest bathroom. In the guest bathroom, on top of the toilet tank, was a bowl with two cigarette butts in it and an open package of Salem cigarettes right next to it. Now, so far, no one has indicated to me that Elnora smoked. It was suggested at trial that she occasionally would sneak into her back bathroom, open the window, and smoke in there but that's never been confirmed. And I'm working on a few leads right now to try and figure out if she did indeed smoke. Johnny Pryor, her cousin, told me that she absolutely did not smoke. But in this report, item 17 is those two cigarette butts. And the submission form says that the cigarette butts were submitted along with burnt-up matches and an ashtray. But it's important to note that this was not an ashtray. It was a kitchen bowl that these cigarettes were sitting in. Report says that they found a constituent of saliva and blood group substance H detected on the two cigarette butts, and a slightly pinkish coloration was also noted on the paper surrounding both filters. Now what that sounds like to me was that a woman was smoking those cigarettes. 
it sounds like there was lipstick on the filters, but no DNA testing was done on those cigarette butts. Next, the report goes on to describe evidence that was collected from the master bedroom. There were several hairs and fibers found, and there was an envelope that was marked fingernail chip found in the master bed, but there was nothing inside of the envelope when the DPS received it. Then we get to items 27 and 28. These are the blood stains from the small half wall between the kitchen and living room and the blood stains that were found on the kitchen floor. Now this is interesting. Item 27 says, Human blood containing antigen H was detected in the stain from the kitchen bar. That's the knee wall between the kitchen and the living room. The next item says, Human blood of group O, PGM 1 plus 2 plus, was detected in the stain from the kitchen floor. Now, Mike and I did a little bit of research on this, and it sounds like this doesn't necessarily mean that these are two different blood types. It looks like all human blood has antigen H in it, but it is possible that these are two different blood types. And that caused me to take a closer look at these two blood stains. And in doing so, I noticed a couple of things. The blood droplets on the floor are consistent with having come from Elnora. You can tell the direction that they came from because there's little tails at the end of the splashes on the floor. It looks like when her throat was slit, the blood could have spurted out into the kitchen and hit the floor there. Those droplets make sense, and they are the same blood type as her, blood type O. And when you look at those blood droplets, with the blood droplets that are on the wall, they seem to go together. The angle fits. But if you look at the blood droplets on the wall individually, isolated from the drops on the floor, all of a sudden it starts to not make as much sense. These blood droplets are round, and you can see where they started to drip down. Now, I am not a blood spatter expert, so let me just point that out right up front. But it would seem to me that if this blood came from high-velocity blood spatter from Elnora's throat being slit, and it shot five feet across the room and hit that wall, that the droplets would be more oval-shaped, and there would be indication that they were moving in the direction towards the kitchen. They wouldn't just be round blood droplets that then dripped down. Now, I do not know what that means, but it definitely calls into question whose blood that is on that wall and where it came from. And we do not have a blood type on that blood on the wall. All the report says is that it contained antigen H, whereas the blood on the floor was identified as being blood group O, which is Elnora's blood group. And the other thing that I noticed when looking at those blood droplets is that the trim was broken on the floor right where that wall meets the kitchen. You can look on the website to examine these photos, but it looks like someone might have stubbed their toe or hit their foot on the edge of that wall, kicking the trim away. And I believe that this happened during or after the murder. Keep in mind, everyone has seemed to said that Elnora was, quote, neat as a pin. This piece of trim hanging off from that wall, number one, is ugly, and number two, is easily correctable. It's just a small piece of trim that's connected with finish nails. This could easily be tapped back in with a hammer or even kicked in with a shoed foot, but it's left detached from the wall. I'm not even going to give any theories as to how I think that got kicked from the wall or where that blood might have come from, because honestly, I can't think of a logical explanation for both. But maybe you can, and let me know if you do. Now, as the report moves on, it talks about some of the fingernail clippings that were recovered from the floor in the living room near Elnora's body. Now, I may be reading too much into this, but item 31 says, The fingernail chip recovered from the living room floor is painted with a pinkish-red metallic polish and is slightly darker than the polish on the victim's fingernail clippings in item 51. This chip appears to have been cut, not torn. 
Now, the reason I'm reading this to you is because Beasley made a point to say that this fingernail clipping was cut and not torn. But then the next item, item 32, it says, This exhibit contains a chip of apparent nail polish in pinkish red with silver glitter. This is not the same color as the polish on the victim's fingernail clippings in item 51. Now, what she doesn't say here is that that chip was cut and not torn. I hate to jump to any conclusions here, but I believe that if that chip was also cut, she would have stated that in the report, which seems to be an indication that it may have been a fingernail chip that was torn and was found on that floor right near Elnora's body. Next, the report discusses some items that were found on the anterior side of Elnora's body. So keep in mind, that would be the front of her body. That's the side of her body that was on the floor. So these things could have been picked up from the floor. But the report says there is one short piece of white thread, a small cluster of red fibers, several clear slash white fibers, and one fingernail clipping. Now this is another instance, and there are several of these, where a clear fiber was found on the crime scene. And I'm just baffled as to what that could be. And as we move down to item number 44, we find once again, hairs in one clear fiber was present from the sample taken from the bedroom floor. Next we move on to the sexual assault kit and it states that there was no semen found in the vaginal swab, the anal swab, or the oral swab. They also took a swab from Elnora's abdomen, and there was no semen found there either. But then it goes on to say that there were three hair fragments recovered from the anal swabs. So when they take these swabs in a sexual assault kit, they swab on the inside of these cavities. And they found three hair fragments in the anal cavity and never did any other testing on those hair fragments. As we move down, the report says that no apparent foreign hairs were detected in the victim's pubic combings, but possible foreign hairs were present in the sample labeled, quote, hair from the victim's body. Now, if you remember back a few months ago, we discussed Lorna Beasley's testimony at trial. This is Ed's second trial. We now know that none of these hairs were tested before the first trial. But I pointed out while reading her testimony that Dobbs did a very crafty job of asking the right questions and leaving us not knowing whether any of these hairs were tested against anyone besides Edward Eights. During the questioning, Beasley was asked if some of the pubic hairs and hairs that were found in the bedroom were tested against Ed and Leonard Mosley, and they were, and they didn't match either one of them. But then when he was talking about the hairs that were found on Elnora's body, he only asked Beasley if they were a match to Edward Eights and she said no, and he never asked if they were tested against Leonard Mosley. This seemed to me to be an indication that they were only tested against AIDS. Now, these are hairs that cannot be explained away. These are hairs that were found on Elnora's dead body. Well, in this open records request from the DPS, we finally have that answer. Let me read to you from these two letters that I did not find in the discovery file. The first one is dated April 16, 1997. This is shortly before Ed's second trial. This is from Lorna Beasley to David Dobbs. Dear Mr. Dobbs, Hair comparisons on specimens relating to this case are currently underway. One hair was determined to be microscopically similar to Mr. Eight's pubic hair. So microscopic comparisons on the remaining hairs were postponed in order to perform DNA typing on this hair root. The DNA typing eliminated the suspect as a contributor of this hair. The letter outlining these results is in our laboratory review process and should be mailed shortly. It will now be necessary for me to continue with the remaining hair comparisons. 
Due to the large number of recovered hairs in this case, I will be unable to complete the analysis by April 21st. That was supposed to be the first trial date. And respectfully request a continuance on this trial date. Should you have any questions, please do not hesitate to call me. So as of April of 97, the only hair that had been tested for DNA was a pubic hair that was microscopically similar to Ed 8's, and it was determined that it was not his through DNA testing. And then we have a follow-up letter from Beasley to Detective Jason Waller on May 27th. In this letter, Beasley references the items that were submitted. It was the hairs that were originally submitted in 93. These are the hairs that the DPS asked Smith County to send back to them for further analysis, but they never did it until April of 97. The next paragraph says, requested analysis. This is what Waller asked the DPS to do with these hairs. Comparison of recovered hairs to known hair specimens from Edward Eights, meaning we now have the answer to our question. The hairs that were recovered from Elnora's body were only ever tested against Edward Eights. Even though they had Leonard Mosley's known hair samples from his head and his pubic region, Waller did not ask them to test those hairs against Mosley. Only Eights. And the results of the analysis were as follows. The remainder of the previously recovered hairs were visually and or microscopically dissimilar to known head and pubic hair standards from Edward Eights. So we don't know who those hairs actually belong to because Detective Waller didn't care who they belonged to. He only wanted to know if they matched Edward Eights, the guy that they had arrested five years earlier with zero evidence. And this, along with every other piece of forensic evidence that was tested, backfired on Waller. But of course, as you all know, that didn't stop them from going ahead with this second trial. And that isn't even the most disturbing part of this report. In the sexual assault kit, fingernail clippings were taken from both of Elnora's hands. There was blood detected underneath the fingernails of both of her hands. What this report tells us is that the blood that was detected under her fingernails of her right hand was blood group O, which is Elnora's blood group. Now that doesn't mean that it was definitely Elnora's blood, but I can tell you from the crime scene photos that her right hand was indeed covered in her own blood. But as this report goes on, it tells us, quote, Human blood was detected in the fingernail clippings from the victim's left hand. However, ABO blood group results were inconclusive on this specimen. That means that it is very possible that the blood on Elnora's right hand was hers, but the blood under her fingernails on her left hands was the killer's. This got me to thinking, how could that happen? Elnora was right-handed as far as we know. This led to an uncomfortable moment in the New Beginning Incorporated studio when Mike and I played out exactly how things would go down if someone was to slit the throat of someone who was running away from them. Now we know with reasonable certainty that the killer slit Elnora's throat from behind with their left hand, which would mean they would have to hold her with their right hand. I had always assumed that the killer would have been holding Elnora's head with their right hand, but as Mike and I acted this out, I don't believe that that's actually what would happen. If you're trying to stop someone from running away, you wouldn't grab them by their head. And if you're slitting their throat, you couldn't grab them by their throat, like by putting your arm around their neck. If you were trying to stop them from moving forward, the most logical place you would grab them would be around the waist. And if the knife is in your left hand and you grab them around the waist, it would be with your right hand. So if you can imagine Elnora trying to run away, and the killer grabbing her around the waist with their right hand as she's trying to run, 
their arm could very likely end up over the top of Elnora's right arm, pinning it to her side where she couldn't defend herself with it. But her left arm, on the other hand, is left free, so it actually makes perfect sense that if the killer is pinning her right hand down to her body with their right arm, and they reach around her throat with their left hand, Elnora would not sit there and let them slit her throat. She would be trying to pull that arm away from her throat which almost undoubtedly would result in the killer's skin cells and blood being found underneath Elnora's fingernails on her left hand. And sadly, just like everything else in this case, Smith County did not request further testing of that sample taken off of Elnora's left hand. They didn't request a DNA analysis. They didn't request anything because they already had enough evidence to know that that blood was not going to be Edward Eight's. But fortunately for Ed, one of the last pages of this document contains a sexual assault worksheet from the Department of Public Safety Crime Lab. In the top line of the page says fingernail clippings, and on the right side of the page, it says that the fingernail clippings are frozen and stored. And thankfully, these items would not be frozen and stored in Smith County. They would be frozen and stored in the Texas Department of Public Safety Crime Laboratory. As we continue to wait for David Dobbs to get all of his information reviewed so that he can interview on the show, I am continuing to move on with this investigation, look for new evidence, and track down new witnesses. People kept talking about a man with a white Corvette. Is that you? That's me. I had a white Corvette back in them days. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. Today's intro music was To the Top by Score Squad. All other music was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn. And thank you to you, as always, for all of your support. Don't forget that we are now producing two episodes a week, and the Friday morning episodes are our follow-up episodes where you can ask questions, give thoughts, theories, and ideas on the case. I do want to make a slight change to that process. I had told you before to use the hashtag with the episode number if you tweet or Facebook or email about the episode. I need you to use the hashtag episode in the episode number. Twitter will not create a three-digit hashtag. So for this week's episode, if you have thoughts, theories, and ideas that you want read on the air, tweet, Facebook, or email that and use hashtag episode 243. Don't forget that as always on Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be taking calls for the follow-up episode at 269-224-2833. That'll be this Tuesday night, November 15th from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you don't want to call in, make sure you keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Keep sending in those new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.